Welcome to our first episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholars and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate for our listeners some of the great work being done by historians at the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with you the ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For our first episode, we have in the studio as hosts Captain Chris Hemmler, United States Marine Corps, and Associate Professor Matthew Janique, both instructors in the History Department at the Naval Academy. And today we're sitting down with Professor Brian Vandermark, also of the United States Naval Academy, to talk about his book, Road to Disaster, A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam, published in 2018. Welcome, Brian and Chris, and thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here with you. Brian, we'd like to start with some questions uh, geared specifically toward your book, and then we'll get into some more general uh, conversation about the practice of history. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask historians is a simple but insightful one. Why did you choose to write this book? And I might point out for our listeners that although you've worked on the Vietnam War for some time, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, you, you began your academic career there, but it's been nearly 25 years by my count since you covered the subject in print. So why Road to Disaster and why now? Well, those are all good and fair questions. Um, I think there's several answers to that. The first is, uh, at the time uh, I had finished helping Robert McNamara with his book, um, I had nothing more or new to say. I had said what I wanted to say in my first book, um, and I had helped him say things that were infinitely more important. Uh, the well was dry in that respect. Uh, I think a related point is that I had climbed to the top of Mount Everest, and uh, where could I go that would take me further than where I had been with him? He was the central figure in that tragedy. Um, he had remained silent for a long time. I had helped him finally put on the record his thoughts and feelings about what had happened, and there was nothing, literally, that I could write that would be more important than why it, what I had helped him write. So that... Uh, gave me a lot of pause. I did re realize that in the back of my mind at some point down the road I w would have to write this book. Um, I didn't know when I would do it, but it would be later rather than sooner. Uh, I just needed time to reflect on a lot of questions that still um, I didn't have satisfactory answers to. And I wanted to take my time with it. I just wanted a little more um, life experience uh, before I set down my thoughts on um, a topic that's going to remain important for the rest of America's history. Lead this next question with a, with a short quote from your prologue, because it, it really seems to set the tone for the entire book and, and, and the spirit of, uh, of Road to Disaster. Uh, so here's, here's how your prologue begins. Quote, they were not bad men, but they made some very bad decisions. Certainly, their decisions illustrate a disturbing disconnect between intent and effect a chilling contrast not uncommon at the highest levels of government then and now, end quote. You, you seem to indicate, Brian, at this early juncture that perhaps this story has profound applications, uh, even for us today. Now, sometimes historians balk at the mention of, of lessons and extracting them from history, but is it fair to say that your project here provides a cautionary tale, that we might emerge at least better informed uh, in our own limitations, uh, our own capabilities, whether that's as, as humans or as Americans or as citizens? 
Again, that's a very good question, a fair question. The short answer is yes. The, the puzzle, the riddle, uh, was and is um, how and why could such intelligent, patriotic, well-intentioned men screw up so badly? And it took me a long time to uh, think that through and to come up with answers that I thought were accurate and uh, relevant and persuasive. And all along, uh, when I would discuss this subject with my students, the thing that would often come to my mind is the uh, caustic and ironic label put on that group was the best and the brightest. Um, but the students that I teach at the Naval Academy are literally the best and the brightest, too. And uh, I wanted them to uh, reflect on this experience because it speaks to them as well. It speaks to all Americans in some sense. Um, I want them to internalize the reality that however intelligent you may be, however well-intentioned you are, however patriotic you are, um, you're fallible and you're subjected to pressures um, that, and complexities that are very, very difficult to really appreciate if you're not experiencing them yourself. And uh, to accept those limitations and those vulnerabilities because it will um, a little, little air out of the arrogance bubble, which tends to be an inevitable byproduct uh, of um, the life road of people who are the best and the brightest. They too can screw up. And I want them to understand that when they're 20 rather than learn it the hard way when they're 50 or 60. Hmm. And that, that answer really uh, leads to, to my next question. Uh, in, in Road to Disaster, you, you integrate an impressive amount of research from the social sciences, in fact, from uh, psychology, from behavioral science. Uh, I, I'll give our listeners um, just a sense through some of your chapter titles. Chapter one is titled The Danger of Unquestioned Assumptions, Chapter 2, The Limits of Imagination, uh, on to Chapter 5, The Hazard of Sunk Costs. Each of these chapters and many more build on a lot of contemporary research uh, in, in, in these fields uh, that are not history. And, and so I'm wondering what the catalyst might have been for you uh, as, a, as a historian to, to uh, clearly set out to situate your story within a broader framework of disciplines um, what, what, what sets you on that track and, and what, um, I guess, how would you, how would you describe your research, uh, outside of history for this book? Well, as we all know, um, academia is very, uh, stovepiped in its structure and its thinking. Um, and the, uh, the disincentives to crossing disciplinary boundaries and drawing on the uh, tools and insights of other related disciplines uh, is great, and I've always considered that to be small-minded and um, counterproductive. Uh, I've always been interested in the uh, social sciences, broadly defined, not just history, but anthropology, psychology, uh, and related fields. And when you read in those subjects, it almost immediately gets you thinking, what are the tools and insights that those disciplines I have to offer that are relevant to what I'm doing, which is trying to um, narrate and explain a story. And the degree to which you can utilize those tools to produce a richer, deeper history, uh, I think it's uh, relevant and, and useful. I also think it 
has the unintended effect of uh, allowing you to draw broader insights, uh, to generalize from the specific. Um, and one of the things that pleases me the most when I hear from readers of the book is the comment in one form or another to the effect that uh, I've seen that same dynamic at work in my life, in this experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that it's not an uncommon uh, dimension of, of that story for uh, good intentions to lead to uh, disaster. I mean, what's that uh, hackneyed cliche, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Um, it's certainly applicable here, and it's timeless, past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. And maybe to give our, our readers a tease here, um, one of my favorite connections here from the social sciences, you, you write about the IKEA effect in your book. Uh, would you mind explaining just briefly the IKEA effect and, and maybe how you saw that play out in, in either the, uh, the Kennedy or Johnson administrations? Well, um, as you pointed out in your question, the IKEA effect is the tendency on the part of human beings based on empirical research to place a disproportionately high value on things that they create themselves. There have been experiments conducted um, in behavioral economics and uh, psychology uh, in, under controlled conditions that demonstrate again and again people's tendency to do that kind of thing. Um, and when you ponder that, it helps it helps one uh, better understand and explain what can seem the inexplicable. Uh, and I mentioned this in the beginning of the book. One of the things that is so staggering is that they repeated the same mistakes again and again and again and again, despite evidence, mounting evidence, that a failure. How do you explain that? Well, to some degree, I think the IKEA effect is an answer. When you own a policy, when you've created it, uh, when you're responsible for it, I think not consciously but unconsciously, uh, you're invested in it. And uh, that helps explain why they would perpetuate a failure because they created the, they owned, they had ownership of it. And it's easy for all of us in hindsight to look back and say that was dumb, stupid, counterproductive, hurtful unpatriotic, et cetera, which it all was in hindsight. But uh, I imagine if we're in that dynamic ourselves, none of us would be immune to that tendency. Uh, we've probably all been guilty of that in one way or another, in one fashion or another, at some point in our own lives, where your the personal investment in something clouds your judgment. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's human nature, unfortunately. And so the, the description here is perfect, right? If I, if I buy a cabinet... Uh, at the mall, it has a certain value to me. If I build and I, if I bring home with me an IKEA cabinet, I build that myself. Its value seems to surpass. Its value to me seems to surpass uh, it, its objective worth. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who are not in the process that are outside of that um, can see the disparity between the quality of a well-made product and one that you slap together yourself. <laughs> But, I mean, what's the famous saying? People are uh, least objective about themselves. That's true of their own policies, too. Mm -hmm. And remember, too, th these, are, these are individuals who uh, had strived throughout life, had succeeded in life. They're very competitive in their own way, 
and they had become habituated to success and not failure, which makes the recognition of failure and the acceptance of failure paradoxically even more difficult. One of the one of the fascinating things I find in your book is uh, is the amount of time you spend analyzing the Kennedy administration and and Kennedy's team of advisors um, well before 1965 and and and, mm-hmm. and well before Kennedy's assassination and well before a lot of the forces are are in motion in Vietnam. Uh, and, and although I'm a historian and a Marine, I, I can do simple math. You, you spend 202 pages mm-hmm. on the years before Kennedy's assassination, and that comes out to 37% of the book. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a sizable portion of the book. Mm-hmm. Could you explain maybe when we, when we compare Road to Disaster to other histories, the Vietnam War, uh, I think it's fair to say that those other accounts either neglect or at least sideline the years that, that you pay quite a bit of attention to. So, so why was that important uh, to you when, you when you set out on this book? I'll help you do your own work too, Chris. Uh, the first two chapters are not even about the Vietnam War. <laughs> They're about the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and I've received many, many questions from people on varying levels of politeness and courtesy, but also the effect of why do you start a history of Vietnam decision-making by devoting the first two chapters to Cuba? It is a fair question, and it's very deliberate. Um, And this is why I did that. Uh, I think most histories of um, Vietnam decision-making take the approach of backing the story up in Indochina to varying degrees, either to the uh, French war or to the war against the Japanese or before that for centuries their struggle for independence from China. So that's that's not unusual. Um, and I think that helps you understand where we are uh, when the big decisions get made. There's a lot of accumulated baggage there that uh, rests in Indochina itself. But I think in addition to that, what hasn't been recognized is the impact on president decision-making of the highly dysfunctional relationship between uh, senior military leaders and the White House uh, in the early to mid to late 1960s. Um, and you, I can say that that was the case, but it's more powerful when I illustrate that by telling the story so that the reader can see that for himself or herself. I don't want to get into too much detail here, but the uh, the um, actions, recommendations, and judgments of the Joint Chiefs during both the Bay of Pigs and especially the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, shook first President Kennedy's and then President Johnson's faith in the wisdom of their judgment. Not their patriotism, but their judgment. And that has a tremendous impact on the ability of the service chiefs and the president to let their hair down with each other and really be frank and honest with each other. Because I think one consequence of that tension between the service chief's perspective and the president's perspective was for both to um, draw their horns and and become self-protective and share with the other that which they thought would only be helpful for them and their point of view. 
it gets in the way of complete candor and honesty. And uh, the examples I would point out, and they're in the book, the service chiefs, there was great division among them over the appropriate strategy to adopt in Vietnam. The attrition strategy would, was the one that was accepted and followed, but uh, elements within the Army and the Marine Corps had many, many questions about the applicability of that strategy. Thank you for those responses. Mm -hmm. Matthew, I, I cede the floor. Yeah, it, it, it's a tremendous book, and I think w what we got from from Chris's questions and your responses was exactly that. It's a tremendous book, not as simply as a work of history, but as uh, 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 an insight into human nature. Mm -hmm. And and I'd like to carry on that trend, if I can, by switching gears a little bit and talking about your experience as a historian and teaching at the Naval Academy. Um, and, and I wonder what initially drew you to history and, and then to the life of an academic historian? I think there are three things. Uh, I cherish the independence of being an academic historian. We all know you're never going to become Bill Gates working as an academic, but you, your boss is yourself. And uh, I prize that autonomy tremendously. It also gives me time to reflect and to write. I don't have to meet a deadline tomorrow morning. And I think that works for me because it enables me to really turn things over again and again and again until I feel like I've got a handle on them. And then I will offer my two bits worth. Um, and I think the final thing is I like sharing what I learn with other people. I want to look back at the end of my life and say I did something worthwhile with my life and not just make a lot of money or climb some ladder or hierarchy and get to the top of whatever greasy pole there may be. Uh, that's not for me. Being a professional academic historian has enabled me to achieve a lot of those basic goals in my life. Maybe following up then on, on that connection, um, why is it so important that these future naval officers learn history, learn these follies that we, we, we've, we've experienced as part of their professional education? Well, I think it's because it, it enlightens them, it wisens them, and it humanizes them to the degree that they can see themselves in other people. That's a major reality check. <laughs> That's seriously grounding. I always tell them because it's true. Statistically, probably one out of every student in my class will down the road become a very senior military officer. Who it is, God knows. Some of it's a function of talent and merit. A lot of it is a function of luck, good and bad, chance and circumstances, they say. But what I tell them is, that's the person I'm speaking to because I want him or her to internalize the lessons I'm offering to them. I want them to better understand that once they get to the top, what they will find is the top is a lonely, dangerous, cold, and windy place where it's almost always a choice among lesser evils. Uh, let me repeat myself. At that level, it's almost always a choice among lesser evils. What choice is going to do the least damage? Uh, and the choice that you make will affect the lives of a large number of people. And I want to disabuse them of the romance of, quote, power, unquote. 
Um, if you're not familiar with it, it seems very seductive and almost narcotic, understandably so. But I had the privilege of seeing the other side of that, um, how it affects people who have played the power game and gone to the very top, and it is not a joyride. Um, I tell them half-jokingly, because it is only a half-joke, if you really understood, the upper reaches of Mount Everest are a death zone. The air is thin, the wind is strong, and the slopes are really steep. And people who play the power game at that level are operating in the death zone. And I tell them, if you really understood that, you wouldn't spend a lifetime dreaming and scheming to get to the very top, because what you'll find out is the top is a cold, dangerous place uh, that will chew up and spit out most of the people who climb up there. How many presidents leave office with their reputation enhanced? I'll finish off then with, with one final question, and that's about uh, your time at the Naval Academy. Mm. Is there a moment of which you are particularly proud? Um, perhaps, you know, a moment in your classes or, or where a class has had an obvious impact or, or a profound impact on a midshipman or a group of midshipmen? Uh, I have two answers to that. They're very different. Um, I've been here 31 years. I've been here a while now. And that old saying is true, time does fly. And I'm not going to exaggerate the numbers, but I've had former students who I knew well who were injured or killed um, in Iraq uh, or Afghanistan. So they weren't just names or faces. They were real people. And it drives home the uh, seriousness of what they are committing to do. You know, you can say that a thousand times to someone who's 18, 19, 20, or 21 years old. But when it happens to someone you know, you care about, it's like, well, that's very real. So it makes what I do serious. And I think the other thing that uh, I would say in response to your question is, again, I wouldn't exaggerate this, but there have been more than one occasion when I've received emails from Marine officers in the field in Iraq or Afghanistan who were former students of mine, um, not in the Pentagon, not in some air-conditioned office in the green zone, but at the field. When they tell me, in essence, I just want to write and thank you for allowing me to participate in your course X number of years ago because one thing that I picked up from that class has helped me better understand what I'm dealing with right now and to um, respond to it in a more thoughtful way. And they didn't need to write that. Um, and what's that old saying? You can't buy that. It's not for sale. Well, Brian, mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And, and maybe I'd add that as a former student, I, I love your work. I've loved it since uh, maybe the course you just referenced, your, your America, uh, American Foreign Affairs class that I had with you here as a midshipman. Uh, and I absolutely loved your, your newest book, Road to Disaster, A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam. So congratulations on the book. Again, thanks for joining us uh, today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to our first episode of Scholars by the Sea. We hope you liked uh, what you heard, and we do hope that you'll join us again.
This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.